The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Jason Reeves knows plants and loves talking about them. He is a research horticulturalist and curator for the University of Tennessee Gardens at the West Tennessee Ag Research and Education Center in Jackson, Tennessee. He evaluates thousands of new and unique plants each year throughout his imaginative garden art displays. Jason travels the world speaking at garden symposiums and serving as a contributing editor to Fine Gardening Magazine. While growing up on the farm, Jason fell in love with the plant world. He received his master's degree in ornamental horticulture and landscape design from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. His past experiences include the Opperland Conservatories, Missouri Botanical Garden, Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania, and Private Gardens in New Zealand. This is Episode 101, 57 Annuals and Perennial Plants, Bugs Don't Bother with Jason Reeves. Here's a heads up on this week's episode. Jason Reeves has a list of 57 annuals and perennial plants, Bugs Don't Bother. I found it to be very interesting, but a little overwhelming. I'll be happy to send you the entire list, plus the cultivars, which actually makes the list over 100 plants. All you do is simply go to episode page 101 at the Garden Question podcast and request the list. We'll also set you up with a good-to-know newsletter. Go now to episode page 101 at the Garden Question podcast and get the list. Jason, what is a trial garden and why are they important? Trial gardens typically done, not always, but oftentimes at universities where they are growing plants to see how they perform in our climate. Universities and some nurseries and other growing facilities do similar situations. They grow plants for various companies and see how they perform in their environment. They take data on them during the summer months or year-round, depending on what the plant is. They report that information back to the companies that provided them the plants, but also they make that information available to the public, to the grower. Typically, most trial gardens are open to the public for you to come and look for yourself and see how they're performing. Do you get a lot of visitors to your garden? Yeah, we get a good number of visitors come in. We are not at a teaching campus. We're at a research and education center, so it's not like we have a captive audience. There are a lot of other events that go on here. We're actually the only public garden in Jackson, which is a relatively small town. A great way to see what's going to perform well in our climate. Tell us about your trial garden. We trial for several companies here. Proven Winter, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, one of the more common brands of plant material. For Ball, Ball is one of the larger horticulture companies in the world, and they own other companies like Pan American Seeds, Selecta, Darwin Perennials. We also trial for Suntory. Suntory is actually a company out of Japan. They have the Sun Parasol series of mandevillas. Then we also do woody plant material for Bailey Nurseries. Bailey's headquartered out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. They do mostly trees and shrubs, some perennials. They own the brand's first editions and the Endless Summer brand, which actually started by Dr. Michael Durr in Athens, Georgia. So those are the, the main companies that we trial for. 
many new introductions do you see on an annual basis? We normally get a couple hundred annuals with a few perennials in there each year. Woody plant material really depends. With uh, Bailey Nurseries, it might be as many as 20 or might be as few as 10 that we're putting in the garden. We don't really do any trees. What type of plants do they send you? The plants we trial here at the gardens, the majority of them are annuals. So we do a lot of annuals that are sent to us uh, as rooted cuttings, vegetatively produced, uh, seed-grown annuals. Also vegetables. We are a display garden for All America Selection. We display their annuals as well as their vegetables and perennials. We are actually comparing plant that's already on the market to one that has been submitted to see if it's a better performer. All America Selection is a nonprofit organization that traditionally promoted annuals and now it includes vegetables. It used to be all seed grown. Now some vegetative and also perennials. When you're comparing their plant material to receive the All-America Selection Award, it has to be better than something that's already on the market. Tell us about how you plant these plants or start these plants in the ground. The trials that we're looking at that are mostly annuals start in the greenhouse. And then in May, we bring them out and we plant them. Our gardens are different than a lot of trial gardens in that we don't plant in straight rows. We don't plant in blocks. We actually have these raised beds called berms where the soil has been bermed up or built up. We plant kind of in drifts. When I developed those beds about 20 years ago, I used our existing native soil, combining that with topsoil that was also from the, the property here, along with different forms of organic matter. And it kind of varied from time to time what I had available to use for organic matter. I mixed all that together. And then, of course, at the time, I checked the pH and, and what the soil fertility needs were. And what we do mostly annually now and again, this is areas where we're planting these annual trials. We till those beds each year in late April and May, tilling in the mulch that was applied the year before around the plants, and that really increases the organic matter. Then we fertilize as needed according to soil test and mixing that in the soil. One thing we did a little different last year, there's different thoughts on soil prep. It's actually short with labor last year, and it didn't get as many students in the summer. Tried using an auger for planting the annuals. Most of our plants are in a six-pack or a three-inch pot, so we don't necessarily have to have a big hole. The auger saved us a lot of time. It went really fast. I did see a difference in plant performance because that soil, in my opinion, wasn't fluffed up as well as it normally is or wasn't fluffed up at all. Things were slower to get started, and by all means, it made a big difference in the fertility because normally I incorporate the fertilizer in with the soil. So I had to top dress numerous times, and some things just obviously didn't grow off as well as they did in years past. I think this is something we could look at doing maybe every other year. Definitely saves on labor. Do you grow containers in your garden also? We do grow plants in containers here at the university. I have about 50 containers where I grow plants that typically perform better in that situation. A good example of that is calabacoa. A lot of the petunias do better in containers. Sore cultivars of vinca works great in containers as well as in the ground. Trailing terrenia, we used quite a bit of sweet potato vine this year. Love growing things in containers, and I'm very passionate about container gardening at my home. The ones in my house tend to be more mixtures of plants. We're here in the gardens. It tends to be more maybe just one to three different kinds of plants in the pot because, again, we're evaluating those. Very important with that is to use a high-quality potting soil in your containers. Of course, you've got to be willing to water. I think one mistake people make with containers is actually overwatering. They'll only need to water them when it's appropriate time or they need water. I love growing plants in containers. How do you know if it's a quality soil? From my experience, and some of this is a matter of opinion, I really like a peat moss-based potting media in my containers. 
when I am choosing a potting soil for my home garden or if I'm advising somebody, if you go to a local nursery or garden center, there are certain brands that are consistent, that are always going to be the same. But a good majority of the brands of potting soil can really vary from palette to palette, from batch to batch. And if you read the back of that bag, it will actually tell you. It can say it can contain one or more of these following items. For me, the best way, unless you're buying one of those brands that you know is consistently the same every year, you want to be able to see the soil. You want to be able to feel the soil. So I always try to look for a bag of soil that's broke open. And I can see that it's got lots of fluffy organic matter. It's not filled with sand or too much bark. I really like a potting media that's a mixture of peat moss, some bark, some perlite, maybe even some vermiculite, but very light and fluffy. If you can't open that bag and see inside, if you feel of it and you can tell that it's squishy and soft and fluffy feeling, then most likely it's going to be a, a better quality potting soil. Price always, you get what you pay for with potting soil as well. So if it's cheap, there's a reason it's cheap. It's probably not good for really growing, particularly in containers. Sometimes you go and you're lifting bags of potting soil in the nursery and some of them are heavier, some of them are lighter. I learned the weight of soil by visiting a bagging facility, depending on the kind of soil. Some soil is sold by weight, and those are typically the cheaper brands. They use sand as filler to make that weight correct or start the production up of that particular batch, if it's not weighing out properly, they'll add sand to that to actually make the weight of the bag. Now, when you're picking up a bag and it's heavy, it could be heavy for numerous reasons. It could be because it is full of sand or, or some heavy median, but it also could be wet, absorbed moisture. So I do not buy potting soil by weight. I don't know that I've ever seen any sold by weight that is of quality that I would want to put in containment. It's usually sold by volume. There's products that are compressed bales, which is what I actually use at home. And here at the university, those compressed bales of potting soil sold by volume, not by weight. Let's look at some plants that can be used at different places in the garden. How would you like to categorize these plants? Let's start out with vegetative and seed-grown annuals. Okay, that sounds great. I've given talks on this subject uh, numerous times on plant material that you really don't have to worry about insects and, and even disease. It's going to vary somewhat different parts of the country. Being in the southeast, we have a very humid climate. We have a diversity of insects, whether they're native insects or imported insects that can cause us problems. But there's so many great plants out there that you can grow that are relatively pest-free. I just want to start in on some of those and encourage you to grow those and try those in your landscape if you haven't already. One of my favorite plants for its foliage, or a couple actually for foliage, would be Altenanthera, Caladiums, and Coleus. Altenanthera, sometimes known as Joseph's Coat, there's a lot of diversity in Altenanthera. Two that I really like are actually seed-grown ones called Purple Prince and Purple Knight. You can actually order seed of those and grow them yourselves, or you can find those at the local nursery or garden center. It's a really good purple foliage plant. Purple Knight gets a little bigger than Purple Prince. Works great in containers as well as in the ground. So a lot of people don't realize many, many of the cultivars of caladiums are sun-loving. They do perfectly fine in full sun as well as shade. Now, there are some caladiums that will, will only grow in the shade. The caladiums that will grow in sun will also grow in shade. Caladiums are also really drought-tolerant once they're established. Once you get it in the ground for a couple of weeks and get it going, it's relatively drought-tolerant. And again, you're not going to have an insect or disease problem on caladiums. Uh, one tip on claims, you got to wait till your soil is warm to plant them in ground. The tuber itself does not like cool temperatures. Definitely wait for it to warm up before using those in, in the landscape. 
Coleus is another one of those plants that actually when I first started really getting into plants 25-ish years ago, most of the coleus on the market then was shade, but it was just beginning to hit where there were all these cultivars coming out that would grow in the sun. In the south, you can grow that sun-loving coleus in the shade just fine. You just can't move one of those that's for the shade into the sun. In general, coleus is grown from cuttings. Some of it is patented, so you'd have to buy a plant that's already being produced. Cutting grown ones are pretty much all sun lovers. The seed grown cultivars are more of a diversity. Most of those are going to be shade, though. Some of them will grow in the sun. If you're in Michigan, it's going to be a little different story with sun and shade. The seed grown ones in general are shade, and the sun ones are more vegetatively produced. Coleus is really diverse. I mean, the colors are endless. The sizes are endless. There is coleus that stays under six or eight inches, and there's coleus that will end up here in the south will end up four and five feet tall by the end of the season. When you're choosing coleus in the garden, pay attention to the tag. The tag on a plant is written for the entire United States. If you're looking at a plant that's known to do really well in your neck of the woods, whether it's in the south or the north, it's probably going to get bigger than that tag says. If it's a plant that struggles maybe in your climate from heat or cold, it's probably going to stay smaller. A good example is coleus. One of my favorites is Color Blaze Golden Dreams from Proven Winners. That coleus, for me, can easily get four feet tall by the end of the season in Tennessee. If you're in Michigan, it's probably going to be more like two and a half feet tall. Keep that in mind when choosing plant material. A couple really good pollinator annuals that I'm really fond of is the whole kufia family of plants. Kufia has been around for many years. When I first got into gardening, it was known as Mexican heather, and that was the most common selection or species offered in the market. Not related to heather at all. The Mexican heather had a little tiny purple flower, and the pollinators love it. And it's still available. You just don't see it as much. If I could only choose one kufia, it would be batface. It's been around for a long time. That's kufia. The species is L-L-A-V-E-A. And it's straight species. It's not a cultivar. Batface refers to that species of kufia. And bat face, sure enough, looks like a bat. If you look at the flower, it has a, a purple face and these two ears, these two lobes or petals that stick up that are red. Another great plant for attracting the bees, butterflies, and pollinators to the garden. I love bat face in a container spilling over the side of the pot. It kind of trails down, but it also looks really well in the ground as well. The kufias are really relatively drought tolerant once they're established as well. One that's been around maybe six, seven years now that's this just become a great performer is Kufia vermilionaire. Vermilionaire is a proven winter plant, and its common name is firecracker plant. It looks more like the old-fashioned cigar plant that you may be familiar with. Vermilionaire is sold as a zone 8 plant, but it often overwinters in my zone 7, as long as our winter is not wet and cold combination. Vermilionaire is more 18 to 24 inches, again, depending on where you are, and has these reddish-orange tubular flowers that birds love. And the last kufia that I want to mention is one called honeybells. It's been on the market a few years, and that's a ball plant. Honeybells is a much more compact plant, only getting about 6 to maybe 10 inches tall and wide. Works well spilling over the side of container and can be used in the landscape front of the border. Little tubular pink flowers with a tinge of yellow on the ends. Great for pollinators. Don't have to worry about other insects and diseases bothering them. Really love our heat and humidity in the south. A couple other foliage plants. Who doesn't love elephant ears? I have been growing elephant ears probably close to 30 years. So many good ones out there. There are a lot of new cultivars that elephant ears on the market, but there's so many good old ones. It's been around for a long time. Lime zinger, which is actually a xanthosoma, is a genus of it. It's an awesome chartreuse elephant ear that'll grow in sun or shade. 
Thailand giants, one that I grow from seed each year. That leaf can get as much as three, four feet across and even longer than that. Love Thailand giant. Lustrous is one that's marginally hardy for me here in Tennessee that's been around for many years. Mojito, Black Magic, Coffee Cups, Heart of the Jungle, Hawaiian Punch. Could go on and on with the elephant ears. They're just great to add that tropical feel to the garden, that big bold foliage. Some of them do better in sun, some are better in shade, so be sure and check that out. Most of them will go kind of either direction. Another annual that's been around close to 15 years is Euphorbia Diamond Frost. You know, there's some of these old annuals that kind of fallen out of favor, but they're still just really great plants. Diamond Frost Euphorbia is great for a filler. It has tiny little sepals that are what's colorful on it. It's in the same family as, of course, Poinsettia, the Euphorbia family. You're really growing it for the, the little colorful, well, I guess they're bracts instead of sepals that change color. Diamond Frost has little white bracts, kind of a baby's breath look to the plant. Really fun one. Still sticking to annuals, a couple more that I'm really wild about as far as attracting the pollinators of the garden is Gallardia. The Heated Up series from Proven Winter is an annual Gallardia. If you're zone 7B or further south, it can be hardy for you, but it's not marketed as a perennial. Gallardia is blanket flowers, a common name. The Heated Up series is, is compact, more about a foot tall and a foot wide, and blooms all summer long without having to be deadheaded. Great for those butterflies, you know, the big petals, a big daisy type bloom are great for the butterfly to land on and sip the nectar from the plant. Then just the opposite, Gumfrina has very small flowers. The heads themselves on Gumfrina or Globe Amaranth are typically about a third to a half inch across. But within that head are all these tiny little flowers that are very, very small. One of my favorites of it is called Fireworks. And Fireworks is a, a Pan-American introduction that is seed grown been around for a long time. Fireworks in my area can easily be two and a half to three feet tall by the end of the season and, and that wide. Then a few years ago, Proven Winter came out with the one called Truffula Pink, and it's very similar to fireworks, except it's about half the size and it starts blooming a little bit earlier. Truffula Pink is also sterile, where fireworks is fertile and will actually reseed for you in the garden. I want to mention a couple shade plants. New Guinea impatiens are good garden performers. They don't get the dowdy mildew that the bedding impatient can get. If you've had trouble with the old-fashioned type bedding impatient, you might want to look to New Guinea impatiens. Two of my favorites are the bounce and the big bounce from ball, and those work uh, really well in containers as well as in the ground. Depending on where you are, they're really, for us in the south, they're really better shade plants, but we'll tolerate some sun. Then a great foliage plant for the shade is Persian Shield. Persian Shield will do fine in morning sun, but definitely needs afternoon shade in the south. Persian Shield's botanical name is Strobilanthes. Strobilanthes, a great foliage plant that you're growing for its purple and silver foliage ends up being a couple feet tall in the landscape and it really combines well with other shade plants. I love putting it with chartreuse plants like the lime zinger elephant ear. It also will grow with sweet potato vine which grow in the sun as well as the shade. Speaking of sweet potato vine, I've never really met a sweet potato vine I didn't like. There are lots of cultivars on the market but you know, I still enjoy the old original ones Marguerite and Blackie. They're very vigorous plants. Just really great performer in the landscape. You could get a little beetle damage on the foliage of 
sweet potato vine, but you know it grows so fast that it doesn't really hurt the plant at all. It'll just keep on growing. If you're looking for some of the more compact forms of sweet potato vine, you could look to the Sweet Caroline series. And I'm really excited about two that came out last year from Proven Winter called Upside. These are climbing sweet potato vines. Planted them on a bed spring here in the gardens last year, and they just really took off and grew to the top of the bed springs about 10 feet tall. It's amazing how quickly they climbed to the top of that. That's really cool to have an annual vine that gives you that beautiful foliage that the sweet potato vine does. Tough plant. Uh, Sweet potato vine along with lantana are two plants that I recommend people that are getting into gardening, have never really gardened, or you've got a child or grandchild that you want to get excited about gardening. If you give them a sweet potato vine or a lantana, they're going to succeed with that plant. It is going to take off. Lantana, very drought tolerant once it's established, blooms all summer long, right up until you get a killing freeze. Depending on where you live, it may come back for you. Most of us in Tennessee, Lantana is more or less annual. There's a few cultivars that are hardy. The annual Luscious series and the Lucky series, those are two great series from Proven Winter and from Ball that are just really good performers. They're breeding Lantana to be seedless where it doesn't produce seed, which is not a problem in our region. But if you live in warmer climates, a Lantana can seed around in the landscape and be an issue for you. Look for some of those sterile forms or the forms that produce very few seed if you live in an area where it can be a problem. A couple more good pollinator plants are salvia and sunflowers. I'm a big fan of salvia farinaceae. The common name is mealy cup sage. There's a cultivar called evolution violet. It is a seed-grown cultivar of farinaceae and blooms all summer long. Then there are some hybrid forms. They're hybridized with farinaceae and some of the other species. One of those that I've been really pleased with is one called White Flame that came out a couple years ago. Advantage to these species, Farnaceae, is in the south they bloom all summer long without surging. A lot of the newer hybrid salvias will bloom. They'll take a break for a couple weeks when it's really hot, and they'll bloom again. They'll take a break, they'll bloom again, so they kind of surge in and out. The Farnaceae species and its hybrids don't take a break. They continue on going. Of course, they're great for attracting the bees and butterflies to the garden. And so are the sunflowers. One of the more exciting plants that came out about three or four years ago that really excited about when it hit the market was the Suncredible Sunflower from Proven Winter. I love sunflowers, but you know, sunflowers is one of those plants that once it blooms and goes to seed, it's a quick show. It doesn't last very long. Now, you can continually succession plant sunflowers where you have them all summer long. This Suncredible series came out with yellow first, and then now there are other colors, Saturn with a little bit of a burgundy eye, or compact plants that produce hundreds of blooms that are two and three inches across. And for the most part, they're sterile, so you're not going to get a seed out of it. I did have some reseeding, but not like you would with a normal sunflower. An advantage to that sun credible being sterile is it doesn't put energy into making those seed, so you end up with continued flowering. It just keeps on blooming over and over again and saving its energy up to keep on blooming as opposed to making seed. Still attracts the pollinators. The bees and the butterflies are going to be all over it. Just a great plant. One last annual that I want to mention for foliage is papyrus. We read about papyrus growing the banks of the Nile River in the Bible. It's been around for many, many years, but it took Proven Winter to come up with a catchy name like King Tut and Prince Tut to really grab our attention. They really marketed that plant. It's turned out to be a fantastic plant. Love papyrus for its foliage. Depending on what cultivar that you're getting, and there's a whole series of tuts, I think there's four or five now. It can be anywhere from 12 inches to six feet tall. 
Papyrus is a plant you think about growing in water, and it's happy growing in water. You can use it in a water garden. You can grow it on the edge of a pond. Perfectly fine in good garden soil. It produces those long green stems, depending on the cultivar. depends on the height. The end of those stems are tufts of green, and I'm actually not sure what those little tufts are called. I've actually read up on that a little bit and really hadn't decided what to call it. It's almost like a little pom-pom. Those can vary anywhere from a couple inches to as much as almost a foot across, again, depending on the cultivars. Adds a lot of drama to the landscape as well as containers. A few more seed-grown annuals, depending on where you're gardening. Begonias are great performers. If you're in the south, your begonias in general do better in some shade. If you're in the north, you can grow them more in a sunny environment. There are begonias that have green leaves or begonias that have burgundy leaves. Burgundy leaves are much more sun tolerant. And the way I remember that is they're burgundy, so they already have a suntan. Got a burgundy leaf, it'll tolerate the sun more than a green leaf. The big series, the megawatt series, are great plants. Dragon wing, which of course has been around for many years, hard to beat dragon wing. This last year, we trialed one for Pan American called the Spreading Hula. It's a cool little begonia. It's a bedding type begonia. It's seed grown, but it trails. It works great in containers spilling over the side of the pot. Leaf is a little bit shaped like a dragon wing, but smaller. Bloom is similar as well. That's the Spreading Hula series from Pan American Seed. I mentioned New Guinea patients while ago, which are vegetatively produced for the most part. If you're looking for a bedding impatient that's resistant to the downy mildew, you can look to the Beacon series of impatients, and those have been bred to be resistant to downy mildew, which is a fungus that causes a problem on impatients and basil as well and some other plants. Look for the Beacon series. Another good pollinator plant, easy to grow from seed. You can order a pack of seed yourself, is Celosia, and there's all kinds of wonderful cultivars of Celosia. There's the old-fashioned coxcomb type, there's the plume type, and then there's the wheat type. Plume type, some of the cultivars are fresh look and new look that are really good garden performers. Older All-American selection winner of Celosia that's a coxcomb type is Prestige Scarlet. I think Prestige Scarlet was a winner, I want to think it was in the late 90s. Hadn't grown it for many years and saw it in a catalog year before last and ordered the seed and fell in love with it all over again. Look at Prestige Scarlet Celosia. It's a coxcone type Celosia that has multiple heads on one plant. Another easy to grow annual are zinnias. I love zinnias. My favorites are the Profusion, the Zahara series. Those are the Zinnia Elegant Hybrid. So they've got your typical zinnia flower, but they're compact plants, 12 to 18 inches tall and wide, and have a lot of built-in disease resistance from their parentage of different species of zinnias. They were crossed, I believe, with zinnia angusta folia, which is the narrow leaf for Mexican zinnia, which does not get the diseases that our zinnia elegans get. My favorite cultivar of zinnia angustifolia is another older All-America selection winner called Crystal White. And Crystal White has a flower about three quarters of an inch across with a yellow center. Foliage real narrow. Overall plants about 12, maybe 18 inches at max, tall and wide, and just blooms its head off all summer long. Those are easy to grow from seed yourself. Get a pack of seed and start them yourself. Another good annual that's really heat tolerant is vinca. Not the vinca vine, not the perennial, but the annual vinca. Vinca is one of those plants you're probably better off buying a little three-pack or a six-pack. You don't really direct sow those. are not quite as easy to start from seed yourself. There's so many different good series of vinca. The Valum Titan, Pacifica, the Mediterranean, the ground cover type that's been around for a long time. The Mega Bloom series is an All-America selection winner. has a really large bloom. Tat 
2 is a series that has a dark center, dark eye, various colors. Then a vegetatively produced one, so one you would definitely have to buy a, a plant of, is the Soy series from Suntory. And those little vincas are incredible. The bloom's about half the size of a typical vinca bloom. Leaves on the plant are also about half that size covers itself all summer long with flowers. And they're almost like little shrubs in the landscape. They're really well branched. They're kind of still, but just really cool Vinca series. And it comes in a big assortment of colors. Works well in the landscape as well as in pots. Vinca is another plant. You gotta wait till that soil warms up. You really need warm conditions before you plant the Vinca in the landscape. Vinca also is a plant that is best rotated in the landscape. You should not plant it over and over in the same spot each year because there are some soil-borne diseases that will build up in your soil and can cause issues. That's also the case with petunias. Uh, petunias rotate them. You shouldn't plant them in the same place in the garden every year because of uh, soil-borne diseases that can, can build up on that. Some of my favorite petunias, the vegetative ones, so the ones that would be produced from cuttings that you would go buy a plant of, is the supertunias from Proven Winter and the mini vistas from Proven Winters. Those are excellent performers in our climate. Then if you're looking for a similar plant, which the supertunias in general are spreaders, they get good size, the mini vista is a little bit more compact. But if you're looking for something similar to the supertunia that gets big and spreads, you look for the Tidal Wave series. And Tidal Wave, again, is an older All-America selection series, Tidal Wave Silver. A newer one is Tidal Wave Red Velour. Those petunias kind of go up and out, so they really take a lot of space. The tidal waves will actually climb. If you put them near a chain link fence, they'll kind of weave in and out of that chain link fence and use that for supports. Really cool plant. So petunias can be a little tricky to grow from seeds. So you might be better off buying a plant to get that started in the landscape. And I'm going to end our annuals with three plants that are edible ornamentals. We'll start with the ornamental peppers. Pretty much all ornamental peppers are edible, but they were bred really for their looks. Not necessarily by the taste, but they can uh, be eaten. They really vary in height from one called Hot Pops that's only about 8 to 10 inches tall to some like Black Pearl that can be a couple feet tall in the landscape or in your containers. Black Pearl has really dark foliage. Again, an All-America selection winner from some years ago has a fruit that starts out like a large black pearl, therefore its name, and it matures to a red color. Prairie Fire again, All-America selection winner, Chili Chili as well, and then Sangria. Both Sangria and Chili Chili are not hot. A lot of your ornamental peppers are hot, so you want to be careful if you're touching them. If you want to save seed of them, most of them are hybrid. may not come true to type the next year. Do be careful because if you're harvesting those, and you touch your face, you can light up. It can burn you. Most ornamental peppers, depending on the cultivar, start out green and then they mature to orange, red, yellow, black, different colors. Really add a lot, especially late in the season. The other two edible ornamentals that are truly bred for eating purposes, but I think are just as ornamental as edible, is an okra called Candle Fire and an onion called Warrior. Both of those are All-America selection winners. If you're not familiar with okra, if you're from the South, you just about have to be familiar with okra, but a staple for us. Candle fire is one that has these reddish pink pods. They can get pretty long and still stay tender. Some okra, as it gets, the pod gets much more than a couple inches, can get tough. Candle fire really stays tender for a long time. The colorful pods add a lot to the garden. The leaves are big and bold. Okra is in the hibiscus family. It's a beautiful flower that looks similar to hibiscus. Familiar with the flower on cotton, it looks almost identical to cotton, which is also in the same family. Candle fire can get as much as six feet tall. Really can add some height to the landscape. Big bold foliage and colorful fruit. So you can eat it as well as enjoy it as an ornamental. Tough plant that's very drought tolerant as well. 
the last edible ornamental is bread for consumption, but I actually grow it more for an ornamental than I do eating, is warrior onion. Warrior is known as a bunching onion, similar to a green onion. We grow both it and the candle fire from seed. And so onion seed are really small. We start them in the greenhouse here in, in February. If you were starting them at home, you'd probably want to wait till March and definitely do it with some additional lighting. When it comes up, it's like a tiny little blade of grass sticking up, and you think this will never become an onion, but it does over time. Once you get warrior out in the landscape or in containers, I love using containers, it will mature, at least in, in Tennessee, to 12 to 18 inches tall with beautiful blue foliage. And unlike most blue foliage plants in the South, it keeps that blue all summer long. A lot of blue foliage plants in the south, the heat melts that waxy coating, which is what makes it blue off the plant. And you think a blue hosta rarely hangs on by midsummer. It's typically gone back to green or melted away and looks green. But the warrior uh, keeps that all summer. Onions are, of course, pest-free, tough, tough plants, very drought-tolerant as well. Once established, you can eat warrior as well as use it as an ornamental I like to use it in containers from the spiky part in the middle, but also in the landscape, I like to scatter it amongst other annuals like the vinca, where it gives you some spikiness coming through a mass planting of a plant that grows a little bit lower. So adds a lot of fun to the landscape. It's a little bit about annuals that are seed grown or vegetatively grown. All right. Well, what about perennials? Do you want to start with sun perennials? Some sun perennials that I'm very fond of that come to mind that I like to use in the landscapes are a couple natives that uh, really do well for us and then some plants that have kind of tried and true. And two of the natives that I'm just really fond of, the first one's Ansonia hubrechtii, known as Arkansas Ansonia or Arkansas Blue Star. It's received a lot more attention than the last few years, perhaps because the National Perennial Plant Association chose it a few years back as their perennial plant of the year, promoting it as a great plant throughout the United States. And Sonia hebrechtii, native more to the Arkansas and Missouri area of the United States, really tough, tough, drought-tolerant plant that never had any insect or disease problem on it. Once it's established in the landscape, it's one of the most drought-tolerant perennials that I've seen. In the spring, Amsonia brechtii or Arkansas Amsonia comes up with real fine foliage. Just ahead of that foliage, before it really opens up, are these little blue star-shaped flowers, therefore the common name blue star. And then as it pushes on up, the stems are covered in these leaves that may be a little wider than the 16th of an inch wide and a couple inches long. Very graceful and feathery, getting about three feet in height once you have a plant that's been established in the landscape. A mature plant can easily be four to six feet across, depending on how established it is and depending on what part of the country you're in. So it takes up quite a bit of room. During the summer, it's just this wispy mound of beautiful, fine textured green foliage. But then it really comes into glory in the fall when it turns this vibrant gold color that can hang on for several weeks in the garden and just really brightens up the fall garden. Sometimes it takes a couple of years, and I'm not sure why, for that Amsonia to become established and begin to develop that fall color. For the first two or three years, it doesn't get that fall color. But once it gets established, it's drop-dead gorgeous. I love these used in mass plantings, especially coming down a hillside. Just really great plant for that fine texture foliage, fall color, and again, drought tolerant. Another native that seems like it's fallen out of favor a little bit in the last few years but been around for a long time is our native yucca filamentosa. A lot of people don't realize yucca is native to the southeast. Cultivar color guard is really popular, probably more like 10 years ago, but still a great plant. 
color guard is a striped leaf that yellow and green. Then the species filamentosa gets that species name for these little filaments or hairs that come off the side of the leaf that kind of peel away. And I love the evening sun coming through the stems of the yucca filamentosa, and it really makes that variegation glow but also those little filaments coming off the side, glow in that winter sun, is, or in the sun, particularly in the winter as well. If you don't like the bloom on yucca, you can always cut it out when it starts putting up that bloom. Yucca sends up a flower stalk right from the middle, depending on the species, but with filamentosa, it's usually about uh, three to five feet in height with these white kind of bell-shaped blooms the size of maybe a ping-pong ball or a little smaller that hang down on it. Yuccas and Amsonia, of course, extremely drought-tolerant. Another very drought-tolerant plant that is a great performer is Sedum rupestris and the cultivar Angelina. Really good ground cover, drought-tolerant for sunny locations, getting about three to four inches tall and then spreading and running along the ground. Angelina in the late winter and spring is a beautiful chartreuse color and kind of dulling down a little bit during the summer. Then in the wintertime turns this beautiful copper hue really gives you year-round interest. Can also be used spilling on the side of containers as well. For those of you who have a deer problem, the Amsonia that I mentioned, and then salvia, yucca, sedum, and then narcissus are plants that you don't have to worry about with deer around. So let's talk about narcissus or daffodils just in a few minutes. Daffodils are in the same family as a few of the other plants that are tolerant or poisonous to deer, including the spring snowflake or summer snowflake, the leucosicum. Uh, those are also poisonous. So are the surprise lilies, the lycoris pink surprise lily, and then the red spider lily. Those are also poisonous to deer, voles, rabbits, so you don't have to worry about them being fed upon. There's so many different cultivars of narcissus or daffodils. Just plant some. Don't spend a lot of time on picking out some. If you've never grown a daffodil, put one in the ground in the fall and you will have it for years to come and you won't have to worry about pests eating or feeding on it. Another plant that deer won't eat is salvia. And we talked about annual salvia earlier. This depends on where you are, but in most of Tennessee, of course, further south, salvia Amistad from Southern Living is an excellent performer in the garden. Amistad is a hybrid that I think came out of Europe. Unlike some of the other hybrids, it blooms all summer long. It looks very similar to Salvia garnetica, particularly the cultivar garnetica called black and blue. But in my garden at home, as well as here at the university, I have found that it blooms better than the garneticas, even the cultivars of garnetica, where it sometimes take a little bit of a break. The Amistad really blooms all summer. In the south, it can get big. I have it sometimes get as much as five and six feet tall, depending on your soil fertility, depending on how much moisture you get. It can be cut back, and sometimes I'll take a big clump of it and cut a third of the clump back to just a couple feet. Once it's regrown and started blooming again, then I'll choose another third of the plant and trim it back. So if you want to keep it more compact, you can, trimming sections at a time. Love that height that it gives in the back of the landscape, actually. It can also be used in large containers as well. Salvia, great for bees, butterflies, and again, you don't have to worry about the deer eating it. And the last plant on our list of sun perennials is a plant that if you do have a deer problem or a vole problem, you definitely have to worry about, and that is daylilies. Daylilies and hosta, I believe, are the two most popular selling perennials in the United States for good reason. Daylilies are tough plants. They're good garden performers. It's another one of those plants. If you're trying to get somebody into gardening, give them a daylily, and unless they do have a deer or a vole problem, they're going to have that daylily for the rest of their life, and it's going to perform. I'll just mention one cultivar. I have several hundred in my collection at home. 
one that I've just found to be a great landscape plant and I use in landscape designs is one called buttered popcorn. Buttered popcorn is one that grows at medium in height, big, deep, yellow, buttered colored flowers. It's an excellent rebloomer. If you're around Asheville, North Carolina, along the interstate, around the exits, you'll see mass plantings of daylilies. That's buttered popcorn that they're using in the landscape. If I could only choose one and you're wanting to get somebody excited about gardening, I would probably start with that one. And then you can branch off from there to all these exciting cultivars of daylilies. So now let's look at the shade perennials. Who doesn't appreciate shade? Pretty much all sun plants don't mind some afternoon shade, but there are a lot of shade plants that will not tolerate at least afternoon sun. A shade plant in the south particularly will maybe tolerate some morning sun, but they don't really want that hot afternoon sun. People always ask, well, I don't have full shade. Well, if you've got some afternoon shade, you can probably grow some shade plants in that. We're going to start with a couple ground covers that are great shade plants. One of a tried and true plant that's been around for many years is the sweet flag. Chorus is a botanical name. There's all different cultivars if you're looking for a little short one. Mimulus aurea is a gold one that kind of spreads along the ground. That is just a really tough plant in shady location as long as it's not really dry. If your soil is dry, it's going to be much slower growing and won't be as happy. If you're looking for a taller one, Ogon's a gold form that is more like 10 to 12 to maybe 16 inches, depending on the growing conditions. Ogon will give you kind of a similar look a little bit to monkey grass. It is spreading over time. doesn't put on these long runners, but the clump gets bigger each year. It's in the same family as iris, so it has these little rhizomes that kind of run right at the soil level. Flowers are white. They're not very showy. Not really going to notice those. You're really growing it for the foliage itself. Another foliage plant for the shade, and I guess you could consider it a ground cover if you're going to plant it in mass. It's not going to spread, is the Carexes. There's lots of good Carexes out there. Mount Cuba in Wilmington has just released their study of native species of Carex. I was actually at Mount Cuba back in late summer, attending the National Perennial Plant Symposium and visited Mount Cuba on my own time, looked at their trials there. But they've put out their information online now, and you can find all about that. They focused in on native species, but a couple I want to mention that are non-native that are just good garden performers are Evergold and Everwillow. Both of those are clumping species. There are some spreading species of Carex. The Evergold and Everwillow really add a lot of color to the garden, being gold or variegated. Carex comes up early in the spring, so if you need to trim it back, which if you live in a, a climate where it gets cooler, gets browned out from the wintertime if you're in a real cold region. If not, you still probably want to cut it back before spring because just like monkey grass over time, last year's foliage turns brown and distracts from the current season. Be careful not to cut it back too far. If you get into the crown of Carex, it's not going to be happy. Be cautious about it. Blooms early in the spring, and they're kind of fun. They're grass-like, so it's not real showy, but when you get up close to it, it's little tufts of little panicles sticking out. You definitely want to get it cut back before those appear, and the foliage appears after that. A lot of your characters are drought-tolerant. Some of them will grow in more sun than others. Most of them are happy in a shady situation. plant that is becoming more readily available that can be considered a ground cover, depending on how many you plant or which species or hybrid is the epimediums. The barren warts are sometimes called fairy bells. Epimedium, a lot of different cultivars on the market. The old one's been around forever was Surfurium with a yellow bloom. A lot of the new ones like Amber Queen and Domino or Pink Champagne have larger flowers and bloom even more. Then there's some with really cool foliage like Sandy Claws and Spine Tingler that have spiny leaves. 
that add a lot even when they're not in flower. Epimediums are evergreen to semi-evergreen to deciduous, depending on the cultivar, the species, and also your location. Some of them are drought tolerant, where others require more moisture. Reading up on those before you choose the cultivar and find the best one for your situation is important. Just like the Carex, they do best if you cut them back in early, early spring, late winter, before the new growth appears, before the flowers appear. If you wait till that new comes out, you're going to have a lot of trouble cutting the old away from that new growth. Much more time consuming. In late winter, you can just come in with a pair of head shears and just shear them down to the ground. Another plant that can be used as a ground cover is Helleborus. Again, depending on the species and the hybrid, some of them are spread more than others. Some of them spread from seed. My favorite actually is Helleborus orientalis. The reason I like that one so much, it is tough as nails, easy to grow in the south. It does spread from seed. I like that fact about it that I can put it in a dry, shady, tough spot and over time will slowly spread. Little clumps moving out from the parent plant forms a great ground cover. It's also poisonous, so you don't have to worry about the deer, the rabbits, the voles eating on it. And that's a big plus to a lot of us gardeners, particularly in shade where we have more of a problem with the voles than you do in general in sunny locations. There are a lot of hybrids of Helleborus on the market. Some of them do better in different parts of the country than others. A lot of those have been developed and bred in the Pacific Northwest and don't take as well to the heat and humidity of the South. If you look for those that have the oriental species, orientalis, in their bloodline, most likely they're going to do well in the south. Visiting gardens, public gardens, trial gardens is a great way to see what different cultivars are performing in their garden. If you were to come here, you can look at 10 or 15 different cultivars in the garden here, and some are actually much happier than others. Visiting a local garden or talking to friends is a good way to figure out cultivars that do well in your area. Another plant for the shade that's also poisonous is an excellent ground cover is Euphorbia robspurge. Robspurge Euphorbia does have that milky sap. If you were to get the sap on your skin, it can cause contact dermatitis. Some people are allergic to it, some people are not. But this euphorbia will grow in the sun, but not very happy in the south. In the north, it's fine in the sun. Say truly a spreading euphorbia has chartreuse bracts that form on it in the spring above about 12 to 18 inches in height. Those stems actually die away, and then you have all this fresh growth coming up that takes its place and stays green all summer and all winter. Just gives you a good ground cover. So again, a very drought-tolerant ground cover for a shady situation. You're not going to have to worry about the critters chewing on it. Another woodland blooming plant that's going to add a lot of spring color to your garden is woodland phlox. Phlox divericata, native to the southeast, really brightens up a woodland garden in the spring. If you do have a rabbit problem, you're going to have problems with it. The rabbits absolutely love woodland flocks, but worth a try. Even if you've got a rabbit problem, you'll be able to tuck it in here and there in the garden. It's a reseeding perennial. It's a short-lived perennial, but will seed around in the garden. And I love it, actually. My friend Robin Brown in Nashville has it growing in her garden in combination with that Rob Spurge and then later on hosta that comes up in the area. Just a beautiful plant. Kind of weaves in and out, kind of shows up here and there in the garden and always seems to be happy where it lands. A few more perennials for the shade are variegated Solomon seal. Love the Solomon seals. Variegated Solomon seal slowly spreads by these little underground rhizomes. Comes up anywhere from 18 to maybe two, two and a half feet in height, depending on location and quality of your soil. Adding a lot of bright variegated foliage to the garden in the spring and summer. 
Flowers are small. They hang down underneath the arch of the stems, little bell-shaped blooms similar to that of a persimmon bloom or even a blueberry bloom. We know what the little blueberry flower looks like. Then you just have that beautiful variegated foliage throughout the summertime. Also very drought tolerant once established. Deer can be a problem with it, so you might want to keep that in mind. The last shade plant I just want to mention is one that is deer proof is pulmonaria. Pulmonaria for many years didn't do well in the south until someone discovered the species Longnifolia was much more tolerant of our heat and humidity. One of the first cultivars that came to market of Longnifolia was Diana Clare. I've had Diana Clare in the University Gardens almost 20 years. In my home garden, about 15 years. In my home garden, it's actually spread. It's seeded around in the garden in a few places and just been an excellent garden performer. Pulmonary comes up in the spring with typically with blue, pink. There are some white cultivars of flowers. They start out when they're just a few inches tall and then end up being about a foot tall when it matures with those flowers, followed by this foliage that varies depending on the cultivar, but the foliage tends to be pubescent, so therefore that's the reason the, the critters don't seem to munch on it. Most of your pulmonary is a dark green or a blue green with silver in the leaf, whether it's silver dots or stripes or surrounding around the edge. That silver really brightens up or adds a different dimension to the shade garden. Look for some of the cultivars that are hybrids. Shrimps on the Barbie is a newer cultivar. Raspberry Splash has been around quite a few years. Trevi Fountain been around a long time. And then I mentioned Diana Clara. So those are four that I've been very successful with in the garden in a shady situation. Pulmonary is drought tolerant once established, but it's not going to be happy if it's really, really dry. So keep that in mind. So that's just a little bit about shade perennials. They're tough plants that don't have to worry about insects and diseases feeding on. How about grasses? We're going to talk just a little bit about grasses, four different ones. Three of the four are native. One that really received a lot of attention about 10 years ago, the panicum or the switchgrass. They received attention for a couple different reasons. One is a alternative fuel source, and I don't know that that really ever took off. They were hoping it would. Also, cultivars came out that had nice foliage, were more upright, and just good garden performers. Still, one of my favorites is one called Northwind. Been around probably at least 20 years, maybe much longer than that. I will say with panicums, they have bred them to be more stronger stem. They Traditionally, some of them got a little floppy in the landscape. One of the tricks to panicum or switchgrass is it prefers to be planted in lean soil. You don't need high organic matter, high fertility soil. It also is best if it's unirrigated. So once it's established in the landscape, no reason to water it. If you do have it in good garden soil, you're fertilizing your watering. After it's been established for a couple years, it's going to come up and it's going to flop over. Keep that in mind. One that I like for its blue foliage that's been around for some years is dewy blue. It is a little bit more floppy than the north wind. Beautiful blue foliage. Those are both native cultivars of the selection of switchgrass. I will warn you, switchgrass can seed around in the garden sometimes. Don't consider it invasive if it's native, but it can be a problem. Keep that in mind with switchgrass. Another native that in the last 10 years has really taken off are the blue stems, and there's all different kinds of big blue stem and little blue stem, and one of my favorites is the one called the blues, cultivar of little blue stem. I feel like most of your blue stems is best planted in mass. It just doesn't make much of a show if you've just got one, two, or three, but if you've got a mass planting, it really makes an impact, and that's certainly the case with the blues, little blue stem. Plant at least six, seven, eight, if not 20, 25, or 30 in mass plantings, and it really adds a lot to the texture and color in the landscape. Also very drought tolerant once established, again, a native plant. 
also will reseed for you in the garden. And it won't come true to type from seed if you're planting a cultivar. It's going to vary. That's true with the panicum as well. Those seedlings won't necessarily be like the parent plant. And then our last native grass is merely grass or purple merely grass, depending on what you want to call it. Mullenbeckia capillaris is another native to the southeast. And I love it for its fine textured foliage. And then late in the summer has these beautiful pinky purple plumes. Love it in the morning or the evening where the sun's coming through it. And it just glows, glows in the garden. Extremely drought tolerant. The number one way you're going to kill mooly grass would be to plant it in soil that's moist. In its native habitat, there are areas where it is found growing in more moist situations. If you can get those um, plants that are produced from that native area, they'll be more successful in that situation. When you're looking for a, a mooly grass, you may want to try to find out where their seed source come from and what the situation is, particularly if you're putting it in a site that may be more on the moist side. Great for that fall color late in the season with those beautiful blooms getting in flower about three foot tall once the plant's well established in the landscape. And our last ornamental grass, a non-native that's been around for many years that's caused lots of problems in the last 10, 15 years is miscanthus. There are lots of cultivars of miscanthus. Depending on what part of the country you're in, it can be highly invasive. So you want to look for cultivars that are sterile. There are several new ones that come on the market the last few years. Bandwidth, Scout, My Fair Maiden. Those are our cultivars that are sterile or have very, very little seed. I've also grown morning light for 25, 30 years, and I've never had a seedling on morning light. Now, that's not to say in your part of the country that it doesn't seed. I have five of those in my home landscape, and I've never had a seedling come up from them. Uh, miscanthus can vary in, in height depending on the cultivar from about three feet tall to six, eight feet tall, depending on the cultivar. I'm going to add that to your landscape. Look for some of those sterile forms that you don't have to worry about them seeding in the garden. Wow, that's quite a list. I know people, their heads are spinning. I know mine is. That's a super list. You're going to make that available where people can download it on the episode page, right? Yes. Yes, this will all be available for you to look at. So Jason's going to send me that, and I'm going to make it where you can download it. Just go to this episode page on the Garden Question podcast, and you can download it from there. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? I think when we're doing landscapes, particularly home gardeners, maybe not so much landscape architects, but as a home gardener, we plan, and I'm so guilty of this because we love all plants, we tend to plant one of this and one of that, and we really should be thinking in drifts, and particularly with annuals. If you think about, you know, whether it's a zinnia or a coleus or a petunia, if you put one or two in, it's pretty, but it doesn't make the impact if you put six, eight, or ten in. When you're shopping for annuals at your local nursery and garden center this spring and early summer, don't go buy 10 different kinds of plants. Buy three or four different kinds of plants, but multiples of that same plant and, and plant them in drifts. just makes much more of an impact, particularly from a distance. If you're trying to impress the neighbors or the view from the street, planting in mass really makes much more of an impact. You may like all these different plants. Choose three or four this year and then change it up next year. Do something else next year where you've kind of rotated through your top 10 plants for over a couple of years. Planting in mass would be my tip. What garden myth would you like to smash today? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> There's so many garden myths out there. The one that I think bothers me the most every year is when it gets really hot and dry, is people saying you should not water when the sun's out because you're going to burn holes in the leaves of your plants. Sometimes it rains when the sun's out. Have you ever seen holes burn in the leaves of plants because <laughs> the water is falling from the sky? Well, of course not. As you see irrigation running on sunny days and water on the leaves of the plant does not burn a hole on it. 
We encourage people to water at cooler times of the day when the sun's not out, particularly early morning. We recommend is the best time. If you're irrigating, you can put that water on the plant before it's hot and sunny. The soil absorbs, the plant absorbs it better, and then it has time to dry off as opposed to in the evening or if you water. You could end up with some disease problems. But I'll tell you this, for those of us who work in public gardens, and particularly for hand watering, we're not going to be watering at 6 a.m. in the morning, most likely. We're going to be watering at 7 or 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 because that's when we're at work. When a plant's thirsty, it needs water. It doesn't matter the time of day and it doesn't care what time of day it is. So when the sun's out, if you need to water, water. What's your earliest garden memory? My earliest garden memory is gardening with my mother. We had a big vegetable garden on the farm. Some of the first things that I remember growing with my mother is gladiolas that we ordered, I think, from Michigan Bulb Company. Then coxcomb uh, that I grew from seed and I took to the county fair and also gumfrey, our globe amaranth and straw flowers. And we actually grew those in rows in the vegetable garden along with the vegetables. And I guess I fell in love with working the soil and those flowers as well as the vegetables that we had. Why'd you decide horticulture is the profession for you? My parents built their house on my grandparents' farm and it was a small cattle farm. We grew a lot of vegetables for our, our own consumption. Just to having your hands in the soil, there's so much in the power of a seed. You take that bean seed or that zinnia seed or that sunflower seed or that marigold seed and you put it in the ground. Three, four, five days later, you've got this little seedling, and a month later, you've got this beautiful plant that's in blooms. It's kind of the magic of starting out with something small and ending up with something beautiful. It's, it's addictive. Growing up as a child and falling in love with that, I just knew that was something I wanted to do as a profession. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? That's a hard question. I, I thought about the question, who's been my biggest influencer in my professional career? And, and I don't know if this really means professional, but I just think about who's been my in, biggest influencer in, in making uh, decisions, plant decisions uh, in the garden, and whether it's the university gardens or my home garden. And think back to a book I use usually a couple times a week, and that's Dr. Michael Durr's Woody Plant Manual. I was introduced to Dr. Durr's manual when I was in grad school in Knoxville 20 plus years ago. And I think I'm on to my third or fourth edition now and, and hoping he's going to put another one out one of these days. <laughs> Dr. Durr being from University of Georgia, Athens area, being from the South, I respect all the information that he has in there and he puts his own opinion in it. Traveled all over the world, the United States, and there's a lot of great information from experiences all across the country. His book has really influenced me in so many ways and helping me make the right decisions on plant selection and cultivars and been around him some and have been to his personal garden a couple times and email him on occasion. And it's just been very much an influence in my career. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? We had this Arctic blast, as I'm calling it, around Christmas this year. We're always learning new things and new experiences. This cold blast that we had is different than our past experiences we've had with cold temperatures in that it dropped so quickly. I was really shocked at some of the plant material that didn't take the cold so well. The plant that comes to mind the most is Cryptomeria, Japanese cedar. And generally, we think about conifers as being plants that are really, really tough. Cryptomeria is a zone 5B plant. Cryptomerias really took a beating, whether it's the Globosa nana, the compact one that ends up being 5 by 5 feet tall, or Yoshino that ends up being a, a, a tree in the landscape. It appears they are not going to survive the cold. Who would have thought? It doesn't surprise me that the hollies, per se, or the camellias have lost their leaves. 
and most likely are going to leaf back out. But for a conifer, you think about them being tough plants. You just never know about gardening. There's always new surprises, and you learn something every day. I would like for you to complete this statement, and this is in regards to your personal garden. In my garden, I have a huge diversity of plant material. I'm very much a collector, but I like everything. It can vary from the little seed-grown zinnia that brings me so much joy throughout the summer to the beautiful bald cypress that towers above my house. Diversity in the landscape to me is so important, not only for our well-being and the environment, just bringing so much change throughout the year by having different plant material in there. And are you starting a new garden? I am in the beginning stages of developing a 45-acre farm. It's less than a mile from my current house as the crow flies. Excited about it. I'll be building a house on it. The thing I've been concentrating on since I purchased it, which will be two years in February, is actually removing unwanted, mostly trees, from the property, whether they're invasive trees or trees that are unhealthy from previous dozer work that happened 15 years ago. Getting rid of all the things that may be a problem, and then also have begun planting as well trees, some shrubs, and then lots of bulbs, including daffodils. And then just this weekend, I moved 156 Helleborus orientalis from my home garden to this property. I don't have water on the property yet, so I have to be cautious. I'm only planting during the winter months. Then it has to be able to survive on its own during the summertime. Very excited about this property. Planted a couple thousand daffodils and hope to put in two or three thousand more this spring. And when I say spring daffodils, people think, well, why are you planting daffodils in the spring? I'm actually transplanting them. As the foliage begins to yellow at my house where they're currently growing, I will dig them and move them to the new property. One of the areas I'm concentrating on will be a spring garden, and it will be plants that I don't have to worry about the deer, the voles, and the rabbits, and that will be the helleborus, columbine, Virginia bluebells, and daffodils. Really excited about that first phase of the garden. What are your future plans for your garden? This farm that I'm developing will eventually be open to the public, probably on select days and select weekends, particularly in the spring when the daffodils are all in bloom. So I'm excited about that. I look at this property as my retirement where I'll be able to produce some things on a small scale and be able to sell those. I do a lot of cut Christmas greenery, making Christmas wreaths, and that's another thing I'm planting on the farm. Eventually, I hope to be able to sell bulk greenery wholesale in the wintertime. What plant are you in love with this week? Oh, the plant I'm in love with this week varies from day to day, but <laughs> the last couple of days it's been Crocus tomasinianus. That is the early flowering crocus that's blooming right now. It is a species crocus, and there are cultivars of it. It's not a hybrid. It's not that real big showy crocus that you tend to find in those racks in the fall at the local garden center, or nursery, or, or box store. One you'd probably have to mail order. I love Crocus thomasinianus because it blooms really early, but also it's one that can naturalize in the landscape. Crocus are loved by voles. This particular one can almost multiply and stay ahead of the voles. It will naturalize in a lawn setting. When I was doing my internship at Longwood more than 20 years ago, we planted bazillions of these in the garden or in the lawn setting there. Done something similar in my house where I've planted them in the lawn and let them kind of spread. I'm actually going to be digging some of those and moving those. And then, of course, I'll order more as well. Yeah, Crocus thomasinianus is my favorite plant at the moment. Jason, tell us how people may connect with you. Two good ways to connecting with me. One is at the university by the way of social media. We have a, a Facebook page called UT Gardens Jackson, and you can connect with me there, as well as my personal garden page, which is Jason Reeves, the dash symbol in the garden. Those are two great ways to connect with me. And then, uh, of course, you can always call the university. Go to the Garden Question Podcast, episode 101. Request the list. It's all yours.
Plan your garden this year from Jason's list, Perennial and Annual Plants, Bugs Don't Bother. Episode page 101 and request your list. This has been episode 101, 57 Annuals and Perennial Plants, Bugs Don't Bother, with Jason Reeves. Thank you, Jason. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.